from wallstack.ca. Welcome to the Financial Wellness Podcast Series, where we discuss all kinds of financial principles, concepts, and products. Our aim is to make money matters simple again. Hey there. We have such a great opportunity to script and plan our legacy before passing away. Yet many people don't take the time to sit down and plan. As all of us know, when a loved one passes away, there are so many emotions and sorrow. One of the best things they could do for us is to give us clear instructions what needs to happen after their passing. In today's podcast, we are going to explore the basic concepts of wills and power of attorneys. At the end of the podcast, we will also share some complicated situations with you when it comes to wills. In my remote studio, I have Adam Capelli, founding partner of Cambridge Law Firm in Toronto. Adam is a certified specialist in estate and trust law. Hey, Adam. Good morning, Vincent. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How about yourself? It's great to have you on the show. Adam, why don't you briefly just introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Um, I have been practicing law for 27 years, and the very first day I recognized a need in the estate and trust world, and so I, right, right from day one, I've been practicing in estates and trusts, and it, which, you know, on the most basic level includes estate planning and uh, estate administration and estate litigation. And I've built a, a team of uh, 10 lawyers, uh, as it stands today, practicing uh, predominantly in the area of estate and trusts. Great. So um, let me let me start the uh, the fireside chat today with a with a quick story. I'm fortunate to have my parents still alive, and over the decades, my parents frequently came to my brothers and I and explained the updated will, which is really fortunate. And so, in the earlier years, I didn't really appreciate um, this work that they've done for us. But in my last few years, I um, I really see the benefit of that. Uh, you know, a couple of things, and, and that is um, it gives us so much peace and security as brothers to know that they've looked after their affairs. It's in order. If they pass away, we know that there's not going to be any strife between us. Uh, we've also seen that, for example, my, my mother have split up all the jewelry equally between their grandchildren, and they, um, and they know what they will inherit from Oma one day. And... Um, you know, so that, so I have a very good view about wills and power of attorneys, and it's not a scary thing for us as a family. It's something that we openly talk about. But I can see that, you know, many people just don't feel comfortable in terms of speaking about wills and power of attorneys and last wishes and these kind of things. And so, Adam, you know, what I've seen on the, on the stats is that about, I don't know, like 55% of Canadians don't have a will. And when people complete their dashboards on wallstack.ca, and we also ask the question whether they have a will or and power of attorneys, it's between 40 and 50% of the people don't have a will. What is, what is that? Vincent, that is human nature at its finest. The postponing to another day is an easy, easy habit to get into. Procrastination, as we like to call it. I, I believe that's that's the number one um, uh, reason for that high stat. And when you think about it, let's face it, planning mortality, planning one's mortality is is a very, very difficult thing to face and do. 
So, you know, if you're going to procrastinate something, it's, you know, going to the dentist and uh, doing estate planning. So, Adam, um, in terms of a will, what are the main, so let's just dive straight into it. You know, let's talk about a will. Firstly, what are the main elements that, that goes into that will and what happens practically if I and or my spouse, if we pass away and we don't have a Canadian will? Well, you, you can rest a little easier because if you don't make a will yourself, don't worry, the province of Ontario has scribed one for you. Um, I'm being cynical, but in reality, that's, that's the truth. There's legislation that doesn't just leave wealth into the uh, proverbial black hole. Um, there is a means to to get it into the hands of your uh, lineal descendants, which would include, if you're married, uh, <clears throat> a spouse and uh, natural-born children, whether with that spouse or not. It's just there's a, an immediate tax consequence. As you know, when you if you have a spouse and you die and you have a will that passes everything to your spouse, there's a tax deferral associated with that, and that's very attractive. Rather than, you know, one of our tenets of wealth creation, as, as I've heard you talk about many times, is to defer tax as far down the road as you can. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a tax consequence. There is... Uh, a real crisis that's created. You know, accounts are uh, not accessible, uh, benefits are not payable, uh, parties, legal uh, uh, account holders and plan holders and administrators can't just say, yeah, I know, you know, you're the spouse of the deceased and, and we feel terrible for you and we'll release the money to you. Legally, they cannot do that. There are creditor issues, there are uh, contractual issues, there's the tax authorities, there are parties that have uh, a claim on the estate and it will be frozen and uh, there's a legal proceeding that you must commence to get an administrator appointed. So I could go on and on and on and, and uh, yeah. terrify our viewers. I, I think it's pretty widely known that um, you know there's certain things in life that you mustn't do and that you must do. Uh, making a will is one of those must-dos, you know. Uh, not drinking alcohol in excess is one of the ones that you should follow, and, and this is right up there. What are the most common power of attorneys that we need, and what happens if we don't have them? Oh, okay. The powers of attorney are go hand-in-hand hand with a will. Uh, people often think, uh, you know, they're going to die, and they don't think that they're going to suffer an illness or a disease or a, a catastrophic health situation that, that renders them incapable. They're still alive, but they're unable to make financial decisions or healthcare decisions. So certainly powers of attorney, um, you know, are, are, I, would, I would say, I don't know the statistics exactly, but I would think that 85% um, uh, of powers of attorney are activated at one point or another. Um, you know, if, if you're one of those people that's fortunate enough to live to the ripe old age of 95 and then drop dead suddenly, you know, you've never activated your power of attorney. You've never had to suffer through a, a period of incapacity where you're a dependent. And we all think about that and we don't want that in our lives. But, you know, powers of attorney 
are quite often activated. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are seeing themselves thrust into that position for an aging parent. So you definitely need to have those in place because if you don't, again, there has to be a court proceeding initiated. No different than if you die without a will. And getting a person appointed is is not that easy, especially when there are family members that uh, want to step up and they can't agree on who's to step up. So there's a lot of conflict created. What is the difference between a living will and a power of attorney for property? Okay. So a living will is is the term that is um, d- really derived from American uh, jurisprudence. It's a, a term that uh, is associated with a health care power of attorney, except your health care power of attorney uh, nominates someone to make your health care decisions. The living will is the portion of the health care power of attorney that describes to that decision maker the types of decisions you would want in certain scenarios. So, for example, in your living will, you might set out, I don't want to receive coronary or uh, a feeding tube or uh, I don't want to be resuscitated with chest compressions. I do not want to be put on a a ventilator uh, if I have an incurable injury or disease. So you can get very specific and precise about your healthcare wishes. And so much so that the demand is so great that we have in in my firm a, a full-time healthcare consultant who is somebody with over 30 years experience d- drafting policy and mediating uh, disputes in the hospital setting and in palliative uh, care situations. So a lot of clients are reaching back and saying, we, w- we want to set up a detailed plan in the healthcare realm. And then on the um, power of attorney for property, that's physically to bank accounts, um, anything to do with assets in terms of, you know, to have someone to, to give authority in terms of how to release funds or selling uh, property while you're still alive. Am I right? That's right. So while you're still alive and you cannot... Uh, make financial decisions and there's a legal test to make that determination but assuming a person's in a coma and a hospital bed they're obviously not able to make decisions power of attorney for financial decision making is activated and not only giving advice or sorry uh, giving instruction to someone like yourself about how to structure investments but there's also you know uh, communicating with government agencies uh, starting a lawsuit if the reason for the incapacity is result of an accident where someone was negligent. So you need a power of attorney to uh, deal with all those property decisions. It's not just asset management. It's really anything to do with uh, uh, other than health care. Adam, maybe just uh, quickly on, on these two power of attorneys. Is it then fair to say that your spouse is maybe the first person to be that power of attorney and then another family member if if they're not there um, how many how many rolling people do you normally put into a power of attorney well we always recommend that you have an alternate so you name a, pr- a primary a decision maker that's usually a spouse or if you're not married uh, or in a relationship uh, you like it could be a common law partner but if you're not in a relationship you a lot of people default to their children um, and a lot of people you know, mistakenly, uh, you know, assume that blood 
makes a good fiduciary or decision maker and it, and it, and it's oftentimes doesn't work out to be the best choice so you can think about a, a trusted advisor um a lawyer an accountant financial advisor and if you're not even comfortable you can go to a, a corporate uh trustee all the uh there are trust companies in business to serve this need for those that don't have a suitable family member or financial uh, or uh, trusted advisor. Thanks, Adams. Let's um, let's just jump back to the uh, creation of the wills, um, and uh, especially with parents with minor children, mm-hmm. that's always a complication. Um, also, if uh, you know, in Canada, a lot of people immigrate here. Uh, they have uh, obviously some of those guardians are in the country of birth and may not be in Canada. Maybe just quickly talk to us um, around guardianship and then also uh, a will normally allude to a testamentary trust to be set up for minor children. Yeah, earlier, and I, I don't think I actually got into the details or, or detailed answer of your question of you know what is in a will. And the first thing that you're doing in a will is you're addressing uh, all those uh, arrangements that you might have designate a, be- a beneficiary. So, for example, someone might say, why do I need a will? I have everything in joint names or I've designated my registered plans and my pension plans to my spouse. Well, there, obviously, if you died together, that's a problem. Uh, there's no contingent named. So the first thing in a will you want to address are all those plan designations that are out there where you've named a primary but not a contingent beneficiary. So you want to take care of your contingent beneficiary appointments. You want to nominate an executor. Um, and that executor might be someone who is the same, who carries the same responsibilities as trustee for your children. You want to make sure your children don't receive, you know, 500000 at the age of 18. So you want to set up a trust, as you pointed out, and you may want to consider who's the best trustee um, for that trust. Uh, It may not be the executor, it could be a separate person. And then you want to look at, okay, who would be the best person to guide and raise and be the back, you know, be be, uh, a great substitute parent. And those are the guardians. And you want to make sure you designate them uh, in the will as well. If you have young children, Uh, children under the age of 16, it's not 18, um, need to have uh, a guardian appointed. Uh, After 16, they're, in the eyes of the law, able to move out and live on their own and, you know, refrain from being under parental control. Uh, That's one of our greatest fears as a parent. You know, you die, you leave your child at a very vulnerable age, and they have a difficult time with it, and and they don't uh, find a a compatible guardian and they end up uh, on their own way too young trying to look after themselves. And then just quickly the the question around uh, guardians in different countries, is that, a, is that a complication? It is a complication because as you can appreciate it's not an easy uh, administrative uh, task to exit uh, a country and end up uh, in uh, another country under guardianship. Like in other words you might you know, the Canadian government is not bound by foreign guardian appointments. So if you 
if you came to this country uh, from another, uh, let's say South Africa, for example, and you've nominated your guardians in that in your home country, your country of birth, when you die here and your children are here, the government authorities need somebody to immediately step in and look after your children. And then a court proceeding has to be commenced to officially appoint those guardians. So it's not insurmountable to have the children move back to South Africa, particularly if they have citizenship there. But if they don't have citizenship there, it becomes an an immigration issue and uh, it's more complicated. So all the more reason why you need to have a will that that puts in place a temporary guardian to look after your children until such time as those foreign residents can come here, get through, get the, the, the paperwork through the courts so they can take the children home with them. I think that's also for me and my family, you know, coming to Canada in the earlier years, it was definitely the case of that they will go back to South Africa, you know, to the guardians over there. But now being here a few years, you know, and making friends and, you know, having family here, it's a lot easier and a lot better for them to stay here. And so that might be just another thing to always update um, within that. Adam, if you can just uh, talk about the executorship, my, my question here is, is there a difference or what is the complication of appointing a, an executor versus a, a professional executor? Can I appoint any executor and they have to go and sort it out or is it better to appoint a professional executor? That's a, that's a really good question and it really depends on the client's circumstances. So a lot of clients... Uh, again, are uh, you know penny wise, pound foolish, as the saying goes, where they don't want to pay for a professional, <clears throat> pardon me, trustee or executor. And when you're when you're paying for a professional, what are you getting? First of all, you're getting experience that counts for a lot. Secondly, you're getting someone independent, somebody who's not conflicted. You know, if your son has been borrowing money from you and and is now your executor. Often they get in conflict with their siblings because the siblings are wondering, well, why isn't interest being paid on those amounts and were they not supposed to be repaid? And there's all uh, uh, there's a whole host of reasons why your family members might be conflicted. Independence is very important. That's why you would appoint a, a, a trust company. And as well, you know, if they make mistakes, they can be sued. They have insurance, uh, deep pockets. Um, and it's a lot less awkward. You know, if you can envision a situation where one son is the executor, one son is not, that son who's not is wondering what's going on with mom's estate. Why haven't I received any reporting? Why haven't I received my inheritance? And then they make that, you know, that call to their brother and the brother is, you know, very sensitive about, you know, uh, about his one brother insinuating he's not doing a good job. And next thing you know, they're in conflict. So your legacy is, you know, a conflicted family now. Um, sometimes independence can avoid that awkwardness and that dynamic. It, you know, if you're, t- if you're telling a trust company, listen, I think my brother uh, has borrowed money. You may want to make inquiries. They can make those inquiries as part of their due diligence without, mm-hmm. you know, fragmenting the relationship between the two brothers. 
Adam, it sounds like there's a lot of um, not so good stories when it comes to implementing and executing these roles and maybe not so much the power of attorneys, but maybe more the roles. And it kind of leads me back to the story of my parents. You know, it just creates so much security and peace if if the parents do their walls up front and they talk to their kids uh, as opposed to leave it. No one sees it and then there's a surprise one day when the wall is right and and maybe then the kids um, that were friendly become unfriendly. <laughs> there's so many practical steps that you know we don't have time for today and maybe we'll have time on another uh, session together but the you know locating the original will you know some parents are so secretive the children don't even know where you know what lawyer they were dealing with now hopefully you know moving through uh, their private papers all that can be figured out but we're now entering in a, a paperless age as you know uh, entering we're well into a paperless age and sometimes piecing together uh, what a, a person's financial footprint is a lot more difficult today so just to recap, so um, a family, so let's say a nuclear family, husband, wife, kids, so they, they need each a will, so there are two wills, and then each parent will have their own two power of attorney, so that's six documents in total. Mm -hmm. What is the, uh, just what you also mentioned just earlier in terms of saving the will, having a hard copy, soft copies, how does that run with, you know, which one is the valid one? Are both valid? Where do they need to store it? What is the best uh, practical steps there for people? In, in most cases, the, the originals are, are left in safekeeping with the lawyer. And the reason for that is so that, um, you know, they're, they're stored properly and they're not destroyed in a fire or um, stolen in a, a home uh, robbery. So safekeeping is, is, is very important. And the other reason is, you know, when clients have documents in hand, sometimes it will make handwritten alterations and it, it has an unintended um, result where they revoke the document in, in error or they amend it in a way that's ambiguous. So lawyers like to control the document so that when the client wants to make a change, they call and, a, 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 you know, a, a solid discussion occurs to make sure they don't um, uh, inadvertently um, you know put matters into their own hands and, and create an error and a bigger problem so document control is so important most institutions will not accept a photocopy they want a certified lawyer copy anyway and so if you're holding the original and you have to get certified copies then you have to attend at the lawyer's office with that original Whereas if the lawyer has the original, they can make the certified copies on, this, on the spot and, and in a quick way get them out to the family members. Great. Um, Adam, for those people that, that already have a will, uh, what is the process going forward with them normally? How often, how frequently, when do they need to update that will and power of attorneys? Well, the obvious um, milestones that should trigger an update are if, if your wealth increases, uh, substantially uh, you can look at you know tax minimization strategies because you're a higher net worth individual you can change your will plan because of that if you you know separate divorce those are obvious 
reasons to amend your will. If a child is struggling, you know, with mental health or substance abuse issues, um, then you want to look at, you know, should they have a trust moving forward? That's a good time to amend your will. Um, if your children are old enough to be your executor and you have a, you know, your, uh, you know, one of your best friends named and they're getting older and they may not be around and willing to do it, uh, that's an obvious trigger. Um, if you acquire assets in foreign jurisdictions, do you want to update your will? Uh, you know, guardians that you once were in very close contact with that you're not so close with or you're not impressed with some of the decisions they've made with their own children and you don't want them raising yours. Those are other reasons to update uh, your will. And so you've, you know, you've acquired life insurance, more life insurance. You should update your will. Those are the obvious triggers. <clears throat> that is that is great. Um, you know, maybe just the last <laughs> last point from my side, and, and it's a softer point, uh, and maybe also just speaks into this thing of um, this decision making and 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 being more comfortable in terms of talking about these difficult things about passing and <laughs> mortality is actually something that I've. Um, done a few years now is to write letters to my kids but I don't give it to them uh, I write um, I want to say a yearly letter to my three kids and and I just keep it in safekeeping it's it's part of the world that they will see one day and maybe it's a good memory of a letter that I've wrote to them but it just helps me I think just to kind of think about mortality and think about what I want to leave them Yes, there's legacy in terms of finances, but then there's also legacy in terms of, you know, who Karen and I are and, and what yeah. we want to leave them with that last final thought kind of thing. That That is, uh, I'm so happy you mentioned that. Um, I, I have done the same. My worst fear, and I think you're telling me your worst fear, is passing suddenly without having those last words of goodbye. And... I have uh, letters drafted uh, to my wife and to each of my uh, daughters, and they're, they're messages that you would want uh, to most definitely, uh, you would want to resonate with them and take them forward. And well, our, a lot of our listeners should say, well, the two of you should just be better communicators while you're alive. You should be telling them these things every day, and, and, and I'm sure uh, we do, but to have it in to have it scribed and there and physically written is a lot more meaningful. Um, and, but you've hit you've hit a real real good point, and that is, it's not just about you know the legalese, written will. You need to have these letters of wishes. Even I have even gone so far as to you know specify um, you know the final arrangements and the music that w I'm a I'm a music lover and. Um, and the people that would be invited because you're putting your family in a, a period of crisis where, mm. you know, my wife would not know, you know, which, uh, you know, wh who to, in who to notify and who to, uh, invite to a celebration of life party, that type of thing. So I'm so happy you mentioned that Vincent, that's so much an integral part of your legacy. You know, I can't believe how people will plan will spend hours and hours and hours planning events that are so much uh less significant 
Maybe just the last thing on the on the uh, on the on the letters and um, and that's it. I don't write neatly, so my <laughs> so my kids can read into my handwriting whatever they want to read into it. <laughs> One day, <laughs> so well, that's why th that's why there's a, a podcast. You could do uh, a uh, you know electronic file. They just need to know where to find it. That's right. That's right. Adam, thank you so much. I know that we can talk about this thing for hours and days, um, just because we like to talk about legacy and you know help people to move forward in life and and to plan well. But um, I want to thank you so much for your time. I know that you also have a webinar once a week, and maybe just uh, give us a, a view on that and where people can find it. Sure. Thanks. For, thanks for bringing it uh, bringing it up. Uh, every Wednesday between 4 p.m. and 4.30, 30 minutes, we uh, at Cambridge LLP get on a live webcast and talk about estate planning issues and estate litigation issues. So we're uh, fairly new uh, at this. Uh, we are now, I think, entering episode six. So you're not too late. We've been on air for five weeks, six weeks coming up. Um, and this next one, we'll talk about uh, common law versus married are, are they the same thing and we have our senior litigation uh, counsel Dr. Douglas Elliott who's being interviewed uh, by Tim Fallon who's an estate litigation lawyer on my team and I'm sure a lot of our listeners would uh, be enlightened by that discussion thanks Adam yeah there's so many things that we can talk about disability in a family and foreign assets and as you say you know different power of attorneys and family trust so there are plenty of stuff and um, listen thank you so much for your time really My pleasure appreciate it. thanks for having me and i'm sure we're gonna we're gonna talk again hey thank you so much for listening to our podcast today you can find our content on wallstack.ca or on linkedin i'm vincent hayes and you've been listening to the Financial Wellness Podcast Series.